How do you know if an apartment building is fire safe? I'm not just referring to combustible cladding here, but the entire fire protection system. Does it work? And if it doesn't, how do you find out? Apart from the safety aspect, what's the potential cost to fix it? In the 1950s, generally it took about 25 minutes, I think it was, from the point that you dropped your cigarette down the side of the lounge and it ignited through to the room flashing over. If you think that's scary, they did the same tests on a modern fitted out lounge room with polyester and polyethylene and all the other uh, solid rocket fuels we effectively make our furniture out of these days. If I recall, it was somewhere around the three minutes, 20 seconds, crazy short amount of time that you have from ignition in your lounge room to the point that that entire area is engulfed in fire. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Whenever we buy an apartment for a client, we scour the strata report looking for specific information. And one document we see is the annual fire safety statement, or I should say we want to see it. And when it doesn't exist because it often doesn't, it opens up a whole lot of questions in my mind, especially when many strata managers will say things like, oh, the council hasn't made it mandatory for them to provide it. It all seems a bit loose to me and forgetting the risk of loss of life through an uncontained fire for a moment, I've come across enough buildings in my time who have been served with the fire audit and had to raise seven figures in order to get the work done. So we've invited Rob Broadhead, CEO of 2020 Fire Protection, to help us understand these risks. Rob is a graduate of the Institute of Fire Engineers, an unrestricted accredited practitioner, fire safety, member of the Strata Community Association, Strata Services Committee, member of the New South Wales Government's Fire Safety Steering Committee, and a board director of the Fire Protection Association of Australia. So I figure he's pretty well qualified to help us understand all about this. Thank you so much for joining us, Rob. Thank you, Veronica. Lovely to be on here. To kick us off, Rob, in 2020, what actually changed around the laws around fire protection? Uh, Chris, a fair amount of things changed in July 1st, 2020. Up until then, uh, there was a requirement for a competent fire safety practitioner or a properly qualified person or a range of other terms like that. In July 2020, the, uh, the terminology around that, A, changed to accredited practitioner fire safety, and B, it became uh, legislation that the person signing off your annual fire safety statement had to be accredited. So what is an annual fire safety statement? Good question, Brian, here. Um, <laughs> it is a document that is submitted by the owners to say that everything in their building still performs the way that it was designed and installed back when uh, it was either built or the last development application was in place or like the subject we're here to talk about today, a fire order caused it to change. So this, we sort of really unpack all of this because you're saying that the owners of a strata building or or a company title building, does it apply to a company title building as well? Uh, It applies to all buildings except for 
Class 1, which is a house mm-hmm. um, that was built or modified post-1988. Okay. So there, we've got a few issues here. We've got post-1988, so then that begs the question, what about buildings built before then? Mm. And it also the idea that so the owner's responsibility to actually get this uh, certificate or the statement and obviously it's got to be signed off by an accredited practitioner and fire safety. What about pre-1988? <laughs> That's just the, the biggest glaring thing for me is what about a building built before 1988? Can those people sleep safely at night thinking that if a fire breaks out that they're not going to die? By and large, uh, buildings that are pre-88 are getting captured via um, development applications or fire order upgrades or Mrs. Smith requesting, you know, complaining about something not working. Mm. So uh, all of those are being being captured and vacuumed up bit by bit. But uh, certainly if you're in an apartment building that has no fire protection, you probably should be asking your strata manager what they're doing about it or what they suggest you do about it. So what's it like if, if they don't do anything besides the human risk? I mean, is there a, someone going around and checking buildings and saying, you know what, this one hasn't been upgraded, you haven't got your fire certificate, this is a fire order? Is this is that sort of the process that happens and then you get it fined and then you've got to, A, do the work, but there's some type of, you know, other outcome? Lots to unpack there. So <laughs> if we jump off the annual fire safety statement perspective, because an annual fire safety statement is really just something that occurs every year after yeah. a building has been built and signed off or after a development application has been submitted or after a fire order has gone through. Mm. Uh, if we get put that one to the side, council fire orders, which is what we, what we started coming here to talk about, are issued by council. And the reasons they issue them, first thing, a development application. Mm. As soon as you put the DA in to redo the foyer in your strata building or something like that, it's captured by the planning legislation and therefore that planning yeah. submission causes you to have to do some sort of upgrade to meet the DA provisions. Mm-hmm. Would that include if, say, I, I own apartment 12 and I, I want to renovate my kitchen or mm. knock out a wall So because that would require a DA, right, and I submit as an individual lot owner a DA to council, does that have the same effect? Less likely but still highly possible because the councils are obligated under the uh, planning legislation to bring all buildings up to a current level of life safety. Got it. We've got a client at the moment looking to buy an older apartment in a pretty cracking suburb and his words said the building needs a bit of love and care and for me that's a bit of a warning sign. But let's say they, that building wants to do things to upgrade it and he hasn't checked that there's a fire certificate sort of annual that hasn't been sorted, that, that could basically even stop them even wanting to do the work because they're like, well, A, if we do a development application, we're going to get found out. Is there any like, risk here where the apartment building just sort of flies under the radar knowing that if they do lodge any sort of DA, they're going to be up for all these fire costs? Or are the costs not that large? It's just really some cases they can really blow out. Uh, without a doubt, there are apartment buildings who avoid doing works to stop the chance of getting a fire order. Hmm. In terms of the costs applicable, you know, it's – it can, it, as, as Veronica said right at the very start, you know, it can be huge the amount that these things are worth. So, uh, but it depends on the, the size of the building and the height and things like that. So, the, the wording, if we I step back a bit, was council is obligated to bring all buildings up to a current level of life safety. Yeah. Mm. So, that's a pretty broad statement. 
And so it doesn't mean the building has to be knocked down and started again, but at the end of a fire upgrade, it must be as safe as it was built today. Mm. So I remember we interviewed Dr. Nicole Johnson some time ago and about her report on building defects and we also interviewed David Chandler, the building commissioner in New South Wales. He didn't talk so much about fire safety, but I do remember her report, Nicole's report, that there was quite a high level of defects in new buildings, which, of course, in New South Wales, our new building commissioner is on the warpath, which is pretty amazing. Check out LinkedIn if you want to listen to see some of these uh, little videos where it goes on site and picks some of these buildings apart. So I would imagine that, yes, there are standards that buildings have to be built to. I would imagine there's a certain level of defect within newly built stock out there that, or, or shall I say, that a certain amount of buildings that probably have defects in the fire safety system. And then there's buildings built before 1988 where the current controls or the current requirements weren't in place. Just fundamentally, can you just quickly give us a rundown of what's involved in building mm. a building and making it fire safe or, or you know, a safe, what's a safe living I guess if we go back to the the hierarchy of importance in the Building Code of Australia, uh, a building when it is built today is not dissimilar to how the Titanic was intended to be built, which was firstly compartmentalisation. It was designed to be built into little compartments so you could have one could catch on fire or, for that matter, hit an iceberg. Mm -hmm. Theoretically, it might get flooded or burnt, but the rest of it would be safe and habitable and give people plenty of time to get out. So a new building is built in an apartment as a nice concrete box with a fire door on it so that the fire cannot spread outside of that. Mm -hmm. The the, uh, outlier, of course, was cladding, which therefore connects compartments outside the building together, which is why cladding is such an issue. That's a whole other subject. But, yeah, a building is designed to be firstly compartmentalised, secondly to have some sort of detection system, so smoke alarms for units is the most common, to tell you, the occupant, to get out. And then you go outside at your fire door, which is uh, compartmentalising your apartment. As you go out, some smoke goes out your door and it sets off whatever the common area detection system is, which evacuates everyone else. And you have the exit and emergency lights that guide your pathway irrespective of whether the power is on or off to get out of there by the fire stairs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. And all that's all your walkways and everything like that. So if apartment, that can't be obviously your lift, so all your stairs have to have lights, all that sort of stuff? Exactly right. And yeah, no and locked doors all, uh, at the wrong no levels. Do- <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, no no, no uh, nightclubs with a, a lock chained uh, oh, lock exit like oh. uh, the ones in uh, overseas Horrific. a few years back. And, and and what about sprinkler systems? Is that So spring, sprinkler yeah. systems are... Up until 2019, were largely found in buildings 25 metres and above, mm-hmm. so 10, 11, 12 storeys or thereabouts. But since uh, BCA 19, they have been required in buildings of, I think it's three storeys and up. It could be four storeys and up, but I haven't got that in, in my yep. top of my head. And that was done because it was determined through analysis that they, it makes a substantial difference to the life safety in the building, and that, that came a lot of that came from the Bankstown fire where Connie Zhang lost her life. Mm. Is there an easy way to sort of get an understanding of what it may cost and then you can divide that by the units, I guess, if you need to do something fast, right? Like because you know, a lot of times speed matters when you're buying. So 
Is there any sort of easy way to get a rough idea on costs or is it, you know, a whole process that you've got to go through that, yeah, can take some time and, and be quite r- big range depending on, you know, different buildings? I think your last statement there, Chris, it can be a very large range. Yeah. It's so uh, determined upon the, the building height, the building size, the building age, what the construction type is. You know, for example, uh, you know, a three-storey walk-up in King's Cross we had two fire orders there, you know, a few years back. Uh, one was built, you know, say 25, 30 years ago, mostly concrete construction, mostly brick. And the fire order upgrade, I think, was somewhere in the magnitude for, for you know, 12 apartments of you know, 50-odd grand, I think, between the 12 apartments. One that was almost next door, same sort of size, 12 apartments, three-odd floors, was built, you know, 50 years before that had wooden floors, had wooden stairs, had no real compartmentalization. And I think the fire order upgrade ran to you know, close to 200K right. for the same effective size building. And, and for a, um, a non-technical person, they, for all intents and purposes, they looked pretty similar. <laughs> I was about to say the building with the timber floors and everything, probably the apartments would sell for more money individually because mm. they've got charm <laughs> <laughs> than, than in the uh, the the more standard, you know, brick and concrete um, number next door. Renovator's dream. Yeah, it's a side issue. I guess so let's say that that DA, let's say they've lodged, someone's lodged a DA, whether they're doing something to the building or internally it was someone's lodged a DA and that set the council off. The council sends this fire order. I mean, how long have they got? Have they got 30 days to raise the cash? And if they don't raise the cash, they have to pay penalty or something. Like, how does that all work? Because that's, you know, quite interesting as well because, you you know, a lot of people can't afford it in some, a lot of these apartments and, you know, what happens if it gets delayed and, you know, is there a whole process there? A really good question, Chris. First one, when it, when council first first uh, makes contact, they, uh, they issue with an in, a notice of intention to give a fire safety order. Hmm. Okay, so uh, and they give you twenty eight days to to reply to them, making representations as to why you should or should not deal with that. Mm. And they give you that not because they're going to say, "Oh, it's okay, Miss Smith, you don't need to do that after all," because you said you couldn't afford it this <laughs> week. <laughs> you have to do it. There, there is no doubt. But what you do have in those twenty one days is the opportunity to speak with your fire contractor or with fire safety engineers to determine whether what has been issued is the best way to achieve that. And and that's a whole other subject to go into, but I would suggest the moment you get one of these, you are speaking to your fire safety professional. Yeah. uh, And they can can help you as to how to go with it. I would not delay. So when they get that fire order 28 days later, is there then three months to say you've got to have this done, otherwise you've got a $50,000 fine or something? Uh, Theoretically, yes. However, generally the council is pretty uh, reasonable in the sort of things. They usually will set it out into stages and the stages usually start with, you know, smoke alarms, eggs and emergency lighting, fire extinguishers, and then moving on to the right things that are important on a macro basis but, you know, that they start with the life safety issues immediately. Moving through those four stages you, you spoke of earlier, is that what you're talking about there? Because I have heard of buildings, you know, they're up to stage four in the fire safety order and, and you know, there, there's very – and I've also heard of, of bills up to $2 million. Um, Entirely possible. Yeah. So, you know – So and- <laughs> the, the, first, the first step – sorry to interrupt, Veronica, is if you get a notice of intention to give a fire order, 
get in contact with your fire safety professional immediately because if you don't, you, lo- you may lose the right to argue any of the points in there. Sometimes there's a better way to achieve a fire order than right. how council has laid it out. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so it's so important that you're talking about it immediately. And the second reason for doing that is that council uh, you know, is, is also made up of humans and, uh, and humans you know, like to deal with humans and like to deal with people who are good to deal with and they tend to uh, be less easy to deal with if they get pushback. Mm. So council has absolute right to enforce this. There's no point. You, know, you can argue individual points, but there's no point arguing that they have the right to do it. They do. So the first step you need to do is get in contact with your fire safety professional, work out what the best way to achieve this is, and start engaging with counsel as to what you need to do. So I've seen over the years situations where people have stuck their head in the sand or they've fought back for no real legitimate reason with counsel, and counsel has turned around and enforced the order within you know the 30 days or 90 days or something like that that you mentioned earlier. Generally when people you know, jump straight onto it and start engaging with council on a constructive basis, council's usually pretty fair about it. They're like, no problems, that's great. I'm happy to, you know, happy to, to yeah. work with you on how we stage this out in a reasonable way so you can raise the funds, so you can plan the work, so you can do it in an organised fashion. You know, a, a great example is uh, you know, putting the eggs in emergency lighting or smoke alarm through the common area. If you try and do it in a hurry, you probably have to use square duct or conduit or something, which is really ugly. But if you plan it out well, you might be able to find, you know, combine it with repainting your foyer or mm. redoing the ceilings or something like that so you can do it in neat fashion that still achieves the the outcomes. Have you seen like a lot of finance companies sort of playing in this space where they see an opportunity where striders are going to have to start paying these bills and they're offering sort of fire protection sort of loans to striders? Like has it been a arise in that as well? Personally, I've not seen it, but I guess we're an arm's length away from that. So it's entirely possible. And I've certainly, on an ad hoc basis, at the Strata Community Association conference that I was at a month ago, back when we were allowed to leave our homes (laughs) in Adelaide, uh, there was a lot of finance companies in the conference with exhibition space. So I I would suggest that, yes, there is. Now, I know that in the City of Sydney Council area, there was a period of time there where it just seemed to be that you know, fire orders was the you know the order of the day. Nearly every building you come across had had one, and they were going through the process of upgrading. And it doesn't seem to be such a hot topic, pardon the pun, at the moment. However, if councils have sort of absolute power to enforce this, are they inclined to get on a warpath and start working through every single building that's in their area? Or are they too busy and constrained in terms of their own resources to do that? Or is there a a time when we can expect that to happen? The main reason that they issue an, an order is because someone's put in development applications. So in the case of City of Sydney, a bloody lot of buildings in the last five, 10 years have been renovated and therefore had DAs. So right. most are captured by those means. And that takes up a lot of council resources. And therefore, there's very few council officers just wandering the streets looking for them. Whereas in the early days, that's what they did. They, they would go door to door looking for you know, a lack of fire systems or fire safety and start issuing. But they've been absolutely packed full just with the DAs in the past you know, five, 10 years. 
So there's actually an enormous risk then. It's sort of quite different to how I imagined it, to be honest. I've always looked at if I can't see that annual fire safety statement, that if they don't have it, then I think to myself, oh, well, they're vulnerable to actually having an order. But then I guess if they never submit a DA or trigger that response in the council, then they may not. But it's actually worse than that because it's not so much a financial obligation that may be looming. It's actually potentially, like you say, a life safety issue, that there are a lot of buildings out there that would not comply purely because they were built before 1988 and they've flown under the radar. Exactly right, Veronica. Exactly right. And I think, and this is my opinion and I'm clearly biased in this being in fire protection, <laughs> but building owners and and you know, therefore the executive committee on Instrata really have an obligation to the people, the occupants of their building, to be looking at the life and fire safety obligations. So they're, they're still obligated to do many things under the legislation. It's simply that council hasn't enforced it yet. It's a grey area, isn't it? It is until... Like in terms of... It is until they're, they're caught up in the annual fire safety statement regime. Yes. Yeah, because, I mean, I guess it, it's a bit... Blah, I find some strata managers quite blasé. And when we say, well, you know, they don't have an annual fire safety uh, statement, why is that? Oh, council don't require us to have one. And I just think, well... I don't, I'm not sure that's a good thing. <laughs> like you know, <laughs> it's, it's it's not it's not a, it's not a good thing. And mm. and uh, and any building built post 1988 has an obligation to submit an annual fire safety statement, irrespective of whether the council asks for it. That said, if they have no fire equipment, then that doesn't apply either. So there is a hole there. Yeah, and so a building pre 1988, say it's seven stories high, so it wouldn't have any sprinklers either. Or would it? Hang on. No, it wouldn't no, because it's, no. yeah. So it wouldn't have any sprinklers at the upper levels. Potentially it doesn't have fire doors. Potentially like because I, I always remember this thing in talking about building defects at the collars, you know, those those mm-hmm. fire pr- protective things because pipes and wiring and conduit and all sorts of stuff go through walls between these these cells as you talk about each each apartment supposedly being a contained unit so therefore fire can't spread. But if if these holes in the walls where pipes and, and such run through, if those collars aren't protecting one side of the wall to the other side to stop fire transferring from one to the other, you know, there's a huge risk. And once the building's been built and all the cladding's put on and, and the wall tiles and all sorts of stuff, how do you even know that it's been built to code? You don't unless it's captured by the annual fire safety regime and therefore inspected and verified every year. But how can you inspect behind the walls, like in the walls? Oh, sorry, you cannot inspect behind the walls. You can only go as far as you can you can look. So the annual fire safety statement regime inspects and verifies that it still is as it was designed, still performs as it was designed. It's not a recertification of what should have been installed. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. I mean, what, what percentage of these apartments have actually, you know, went through your travels, Veronica, and through your understanding, Rob? I mean, 
is you know 80 90% of apartment blocks being done now and, and are doing this sort of annual thing or is it more the other way where it's still a huge you know number of apartments aren't done and you know a big risk with a lot of people looking going hang on a sec that one's not done how much is going to cost do, do we have the money for it etc we don't have data on that um, mm. but i but i imagine that'll be part of uh, the the building commissioner david chandler's future plans so, uh, you know, his plans at the moment, he's still, you know, as you said, look up LinkedIn or anywhere to see him beating developers over the head. But <laughs> the the fire safety steering committee that I sit on with Matt Press is uh, uh, one of his men. It's all about the future stages, which is to coming back around to the built environment post-construction, e.g. how do we make sure that all buildings now and in the future remain safe? And so they're, they're you know, I guess, the whole Miami Building collapse is probably mm. a worst case scenario. It doesn't relate to fire, but it's the same concept. Buildings yeah. will not stand up forever unless they continue to be maintained and continue to be maintained by people who are competent to do so. So ensuring that existing buildings are safe is part of uh, David Chandler's, uh, I think he said, 2023 plans. Is this a national thing as well or is this a state-based thing? This is a state-based thing at the moment, but yep. it ties in very nicely with the ABCB, the Australian Building Codes Board, is currently doing a significant review, and I'm trying to think what the, what the acronym for it is, but it relates to what was set out in the Shergold Weir report, so yep. in terms of uh, life safety and fire safety in buildings. So you probably heard Bromwell Weir on the, yep. on the news and other things like that. So uh, what they came up with is what the ABCB is working on. And there's quite a lot of interaction happening at the moment between New South Wales, the Building Commission's steering committees, Michael Lambert, who wrote the Lambert report, I think a post Bankstown. All of those are talking. But at the moment, this is a New South Wales thing, but there's a lot of interest from the other states um, for the future. From your awareness, are Victoria, sort of Queensland on a similar path? I mean, um, or is it? Or are we sort of leading the front for the first time? <laughs> We're leading the front on the first, for the first time, but uh, certainly Queensland was a long way ahead of us. Uh, so they had the Childers Backpackers Fire and a couple mm. other things, mm. and so they implemented however much we like or dislike it if we happen to be in Queensland, working in Queensland. But they implemented occupational licensing, a whole lot of requirements for competence and training and the like for people working in this space and driving fire and life safety many, many years ago. So they've been ahead of us for a long time and now New South Wales is is well and truly leading the, the, the next stage. It's really horrible to think that it takes tragedy to promote change, isn't it? It's really awful. But, I mean, I'm actually quite amazed. David Chandler, you, you hear a lot of government organisations and, and you think, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever, toothless tiger, but honestly, he's... <laughs> He's got lockjaw. <laughs> He's, you know, oh, yeah. I'm actually really. He puts his. He really does put puts his money where his mouth is and gets into action. And you know, and I'm hoping that absolutely puts a massive broom through the entire industry. But like, I think what you say is really interesting, and it's something that we all need to remember. And in that is that we need to maintain our buildings. Exactly right. So, you know, I interviewed actually on your first Home Buyer Guide podcast, we interviewed a building inspector that, a very old building inspector that was not that old, he's in the 60s, but 
He taught me so much because we used to get him to do a lot of our inspections when I first started as a buyer's agent. You know, and he said the buildings start deteriorating the minute they're basically your hammer the last nail in, you know, the, the minute it's finished, the building starts deteriorating. And I guess that the fire safety system is part of that building, isn't it? Exactly. Stuff breaks down, right? So Rob, well, if someone's living in a building and they're looking around, what are the signs that they're going to be okay if there's a fire? Like what can they see around mm. them that's going to give them a clue as to, okay, this building's probably sorted. I guess the uh, the simple one to look for on that one is first in the apartment, you need a working smoke alarm. You need a working smoke alarm that is in between the living area and your bedroom and each bedroom. That's the first one. That is, there's a 50, I think it's a 54% greater chance of surviving a fire in your property if you have a working smoke alarm. Mm-hmm. That's massive. Think of that 54% greater chance of living if you have a working smoke alarm. Yep. But it's also your location you mentioned there, which I think is quite interesting. So, you know, if you've got multiple bedrooms, it's really between the living area you said and the bedroom. Is that sort of the the goal? That's exactly right, between the living area and every bedroom because, right. you know, fires, you know, aside from, you know, people smoking in bed and perhaps a heater next to their bed, <laughs> a lot of fires occur because of, you know, common area, uh, heaters in their lounge rooms, uh, cooking fires, things like that. So you want to know that, something has occurred in the rest of your apartment long before it gets to your bedroom. And I can send you the YouTube link later, but you can probably look it up as well. There's a whole lot of studies on how long it takes from ignition to a standard room flashing over. So a standard lounge room flashing over. And by flashing over, I mean totally engulfed in fire, unhabitable in any way, shape or form. And so in the 1950s, I think it was when they did the, the tests a lounge room that was decked out like your grandparents had in the 1950s generally took about 25 minutes, I think it was, from the point that you dropped your cigarette down the side of the lounge and it ignited through to the room flashing over. Mm. Not that long, really. No, it's not very long, is it? But that's if you think that's scary, they did the same tests on a modern fitted-out lounge room with you know polyester and polyethylene and mm. all the other uh, solid fuels, rocket fuels we effectively make our furniture out of these days. And this is going off my memory, but I, if I recall, it was somewhere around the three minutes and 20 seconds. <gasps> oh, my God. Three minutes, 20 seconds or something like that. It's it crazy Jesus. short amount of time that you have from ignition in your lounge room to the point that that entire area is engulfed. uninhabitable, engulfed, engulfed in fire. So that's why the smoke alarm is the most so important. And so your bedroom, right, obviously well, often you have to run through a living area to get out of your house. Yep. What you're basically saying is in the main areas in which the fire would be created or started and if it could be within three and a half minutes, that smoke alarm has to be pretty bloody sensitive and you have to get up and get out of there ASAP. You don't even have time to get your jammies on if you're sleeping naked. That's exactly right. Yes, my neighbours are going to be very scared if we ever have a house fire. <laughs> but I mean, is it, is it worth, you know, we've got a multi-level house, but maybe a fire would start. I mean, you never really know where it's going to start, do you? It could be wiring or something causes it. But mm-hmm. is it wise to sort of have that escape plan, you know, maybe smashing windows or something, you know, do you think that's what people lens people should be going to, or do you think people should just fall back on the fire alarm? Or I think everyone should think about their their fire safety plan. But the the first thing is smoke alarms under the current building code and smoke alarm legislation requires that if you have a multi level house or apartment, that there should be smoke alarms on both levels and interconnected. 
so that if one goes off, the other goes off. So if, mm-hmm. you're, if you have a kitchen downstairs, there's a fire there, and it sets off the smoke alarm near the kitchen, it should also set off the one upstairs to wake you up. Do you know, I mean, we started talking about apartment buildings and we will go back there, but one of the things, I don't know, years ago, I remember reading about this family that were trapped inside because they had bars in the window. And Mm -hmm. I have bars Mm -hmm. on the front section of my house and I also have a front grill between the the front door and, you know, the street. But I always leave a key in the front door (laughs) <laughs> you know, I'm paranoid about actually making sure that you can robbers. get out. <laughs> you, can get, you know, it's all good to be safe from robbers. <laughs> there's a gap. There's a there's more than a meter between the grill and the door. <laughs> you know, I'm always mindful of. It's all good to to be yeah be safe from break in. But what about breaking out? You know, I and it, it, it's just one of those things that's stuck in my mind. I think I must have read that newspaper article when I was in my teens even, but it's really stuck in my brain. But going back to the apartments, I think one thing that alarms me is that if you're looking at buildings that are built before 1988 and might be less than 10 storeys high or however many storeys high to get that 25 metres in height, don't have the sprinkler systems, may not have fire doors, may not have alarms, Although I think that's separate, though, isn't it? That is. Uh, so, so there was the smoke alarm legislation two thousand six, mm-hmm. which is one of the only bits of retrospective or grandfathering legislation that requires a smoke alarm in every apartment which is rented or sold, or every house that is rented or sold. Mm. And and that was further strengthened last year by the Residential Tenancies Act, if I'm recalling the, the wording correctly, which requires you to have a. You know, working smoke alarm in a whole lot of reasons. But, you know, older people could be living in an apartment they haven't sold, they've never rented it out, it's on the fifth floor in a building that was built in the 1960s, you know. So th- there's actually quite a lot of individual properties that are quite vulnerable. Without a doubt. Yeah, and, and it, it's certainly got me thinking because certainly in our due diligence and our business, you know, and I'm thinking more on the financial side of things because I'm thinking, well, look, if this building slapped with an order, your responsibility to commit to that could be in the magnitude of, you know, it could be $100,000 if, if it's it's a really expensive one and there's not enough apartments. So, sorry, I'm a bit speechless because I'm a bit horrified at the risks here. Not dissimilar to the, you know, security bars that you have on your windows. Your life, your life safety is a balancing act between security and fire safety, mm. just like your when you're purchasing that apartment, whether it has a fire order or not, is a balancing act between, you know, the life safety of living in said, said building versus the cost of doing so. Mm. Personally, I no one wants to expend the money. I'd much rather live in a, in a building which had a current level of life safety because we know how fire, fast fire can can, uh, can grow. I'll, I'll find you that, that, that link to that YouTube mm. showing that study because I've shown it to all of my technicians and almost bar none, they all were shocked by how fast fire grows because most mm-hmm. people don't don't ever deal with fire. They you know, sit around a campfire occasionally and mm. burn their fingers with a marshmallow, but rarely does anyone actually see firsthand how fast these things grow and how rapidly it moves from safe to you're dead. Yeah, obviously, there's the fire order, the cost. I mean, I'm, and you may be able to finance that, you know, let's say you did buy this apartment and it needs this fire order and you know maybe some fine strata finance could save but your strata finance you've got to get everyone to agree to it and a lot of people don't want to agree to that and so you know you might have to fund it out of your own pocket but what i sort of think i was well if you don't bring your apartment building up to speed there could be fines with council and things like that but is there a sort of insurance risk as well here where 
if there is legislation saying that this building needs to be up to speed but it's not and then there is a fire and everyone gets out safely, let's say, but the building does burn down or severely damage, the insurance company won't pay out because they didn't do what they needed to do for the fire order. Is there a sort of you know massive gap there? I think that's way above my pay grade to answer that one, Chris. <laughs> yeah. I imagine your um, your insurer would probably be uh, looking at those things when they're renewing your insurance. I mean, I, I uh, you know, my factory unit where where our office is based has flammable cladding on the outside of it. Yeah, it's only it's only two stories and it's only a factory, and therefore the building code actually is, allows it. Mm. But our insurer is well and truly aware of it, asking questions about it, and our insurance policy unfortunately reflects the fact we have flammable cladding on the outside Mm. irrespective of its compliance. The whole flammable cladding is another issue, isn't it, again? Absolutely. Because that's not so much a fire protection system, that's actually a building material that really should never become a building material. And I guess we don't need to go into, like you said earlier, it basically links the entire structure. So basically once that's on fire, then there's nothing to stop it. What, are you involved in any way, am I asking you sort of out of out of context here, are you involved in any way in the remediation works and the program that's being undertaken? Because there's a lot of opacity around this, isn't there, in terms of what buildings are actually clad in inflammable cladding versus those that aren't. And it's, it's a bit hard for buyers to get any information on this because, of course, nobody wants to publicise that their building is clad with this stuff. I am not involved in it whatsoever. However, going back to the first point, cladding in its essence completely derails the the concept of building design, which is to compartmentalise each section so it cannot spread. (laughs) And going back to fire systems, generally they're designed to work with one fire Mm. in the building Uh, and therefore anything which connects these things together and causes fires to occur in multiple locations or even smoke to occur in multiple locations derails the entire safety of the building. So if you are in a building with cladding or you are thinking about buying into a building with cladding for your own life safety, I would suggest that you get someone to have it tested properly. So I think uh, you know the CSIROs, the Warrington Fire Research and a few others do tests on cladding to determine whether it is flammable or not. That's as far as I can I can speak on the subject. Yeah, interesting. So I guess what that's saying is that if you're in a building that is clad, get it tested, and if you're looking at buying it in a building that is clad, then maybe just give it a wide berth because you can't get access to that information if you're just looking to buy into a building. Mm. No, you can't. You, you certainly should ask for it, but mm. you can get it or not, I do not know. <laughs> I think the the main thing with all this is that she'll be right. It's not going to obviously the legislation's hopefully stopping that, but you know that that mentality is is not enough with this, you know, because it's you know, obviously it's very rare. But when it does happen, it's uh, life threatening. One more point to make: I uh, was researching this one yesterday. I think when you buy or sell an apartment, there used to be a certificate called a one four nine certificate, and I think it's called a council section ten point seven now. Yes, it, it's the zoning certificate. That, uh, the zoning it, certificate. And, and I just before you go ahead here, Rob, this is only in New South Wales. Every single jurisdiction or state or territory has a legislated requirements or vendor disclosure requirements, right? And so in New South Wales and in Victoria, there's also a zoning certificate that the vendor has to has to provide, and and these come from council. So this is in the contract of sale in New South Wales. 
Yep. So if we're talking about fire orders, once that fire order is issued, e.g. gone past the intention to give one, it will be listed in there. So that's something that's really important for any uh, buyers to look for mm. because it'll, it'll list a fire order, it'll list any, uh, I don't know about cladding, but it'll certainly list any uh, DAs and fire orders and things like that that are in there. So important that people are looking for that. That's a great tip. And you know what? I've never looked there for it. I've already just noted down that I'm going to add that to our uh, due diligence process in my business and my team will go, great, another thing to look into. (laughs) But, you know, we do look for various things, documents in a contract at the outset of our due diligence process anyway, and I'm just going to add that to our list. So thank you so much for that, Rob. Have Have you got a Dumbo? Share it with us. In terms of buildings, oh, so so many. <laughs> but the key to it is, is you know, we touched on it before. Buildings have to be maintained, okay. And so, in terms of fire protection, that means that you are inspecting and testing it every month, every six months, every year, depending on the the type and size of building, to make sure that it continues working. And then that is separate to every year issuing an annual fire safety statement to say that it still performs the way it was designed. Those things there are so important. Uh, we found a building, quite a large one. I think it had almost 600 apartments all up across five or six buildings. And it had an EWAS system, which is an emergency warning and intercommunication system. And when we tested it, we found that in the apartments, we were only getting 55 decibels. So that's a measurement of sound pressure level. Uh, 55 decibels in the bedrooms of that apartment block. And this, this had not been picked up previously. This made us rather unpopular with the building owners. But <laughs> where we were going with this is, is the standard requires either 65 decibels at all points of the floor, 75 decibels at the bedhead, or no less than 100 decibels at the door to the apartment. And this one, he had 55 decibels. And so to put that in perspective, sitting here doing this podcast, I'm speaking at about 60 decibels. Wow. Okay, and evidence shows that you need in excess of 70 decibels to wake a sleeping adult in, you know, when they're in REM sleep, I think it is, and a child probably requires higher than that. And so this this very large building with very, very many apartments had 55 decibels at the bedheads. And so in simple terms, it it was quieter than you usually watch your television, quieter than I'm talking now trying to wake people up to say that there was a fire emergency in their building. When your lounge room can ignite and be impassable within three minutes, yeah. Yep. That's alarming. And so did they do anything about it? Yeah, they sacked us. Oh, that's the Dumbo. (laughs) Oh, my God. Wow. So what caused that? That was um, the walls were too thick or something? I don't know. No, it was the uh, the – the emergency warning and intercommunication system had undersized amplifiers uh, providing the volume to the speakers. <laughs> uh, they didn't have the speakers in the correct locations and therefore the entire thing was derailed by the fact that it wasn't installed or designed or, uh, <sighs> or, or tested properly until that moment. Oh, my God. But that's an easy fix, surely. You just turn the volume up or, do, you know, it's not like it's – a massive structural thing. The amplifiers were undersized, so so I think all up and, and some speakers were missing. So I think across the six hundred units it was probably eighty thousand dollars to fix it. So right, hence that was good justification to uh, to fire us from said um, site. Wow, and that's a small cost. 
over 600 yeah. units. God. That's right. Mm. But, um, you know, that unfortunately, and, 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 you know, why I'm so excited to be on this, this podcast and others like it is that no one cares about fire protection until they are literally on fire, running, screaming out of the room, about to die. Oh, my God. That's horrific. And, and it's so important for us to not just think about it from a financial perspective. And, yes, I'm biased when I say that. But it's the reason why we have relatively few deaths due to fire in Australia, in apartment buildings particularly, is because we have pretty good fire systems. Mm. But they're only as good as they are regularly maintained and checked to make sure they continue performing. Well, I mean, sometimes it's on the news, right? You see the fire in um, somewhere and it's on the news, but a lot of them obviously aren't. Have you got any idea of just how many or what percentage of apartments or, you know, like is there actually like, you know, 10 fires of apartments in, you know, New South Wales a year or is it like 10,000? Like I have no idea. Uh, I am trying to Google the New South Wales Fire and Rescue website right now, but they, 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 they can tell you I don't know the answer to that one. Yeah. I've got a question for you, Rob, just just a sort of final question. I was in an apartment once and I noticed there were no smoke detectors, but there were these other sort of little device things stuck to the roof that, and they said they were a heat sensor. Mm-hmm. What's the difference? In an apartment, generally you will have a smoke alarm. And so a smoke alarm is a standalone unit. Yes, it can be interconnected to another one if you have two levels, but mm. it's a standalone unit that both detects smoke and alarms yep. to tell you to get out. So it's a domestic device designed to get you out of your own apartment or house as quickly as possible. Depending on the size of the building, it may also have a fire detection and alarm system, which mm-hmm. means you have smoke or heat detectors, which connect back to a fire panel, which therefore evacuates everyone in the building if there is a fire. So right. uh, in many new apartments, you'll see a combination of heat detectors and smoke alarms so the smoke alarm tells you to get out and the heat detector once your apartment heats up to a certain level tells everyone else in the building to get out right so they you need both and not one or the other it's, it's it depends on the exact building designer mm. that's that's hard to answer but certainly in some buildings from the is the mid 60s to mid 70s for buildings that were i think it was 25 meters to 41 meters in effective height you are allowed to have heat detectors instead of sprinklers. Mm-hmm. So that's also could be what you're seeing. Yeah. But, um, yeah, sometimes you will see heat detectors, which are those sensors you're talking about in apartments Got it. instead of or as well as smoke alarms. But certainly if you see them, they don't override the smoke alarm legislation of 2006 or the Residential Tenancies Act requiring working smoke alarms. That's the key point here, I think, and um, thanks for clarifying that. Rob, thank you so much for coming along today. I know this is a topic that you're very passionate about, and for me um, this has been a question that I've really been niggling at the back of my mind for some time, so I really do appreciate you coming along and explaining all this stuff. And I certainly, as I said, I'm going to just tweak up some of our due diligence in our business, but it, this is really important, obviously, not just for people buying apartments, but for people who already are living yep. in and own one. Thank you so much for coming along. Thank you very much for having me on. It's uh, much appreciated. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Veronica. We want to make you a better elephant rider, and this week's elephant rider training is... Well, after that quite sobering conversation, we really pride ourselves in our business on our due diligence, and we do go to much greater lengths than I know most 
buyers would do, even most buyers agents would do. As I said earlier, I'm going to add a few steps into our due diligence process for apartment buildings. I think this is really, really critical stuff. But just want to quickly touch on some of the other things that we do in terms of due diligence and some other things that can be found in that 149 certificate too, such as bushfire zones and flood zones and, you know, compulsory acquisition potentially for road widening and all sorts of things like that are actually found in that zoning certificate, which is part of the contract. That is something that I would encourage buyers to read, you know, but particularly in uh, New South Wales and Victoria where it is a mandatory document that has to be issued or um, provided by vendors. You can even in other states, you can request this sort of information, whether you get it or not is another kettle of fish. But when we buy a property, we do look at a lot of other things around due diligence. You know, it's it's not enough when you're buying an apartment just to tick the box, okay, yes, I got the contract review by solicitor and yeah, I got a strata report. You need to get in there and, and read it and understand what it is you're buying into. And with strata in particular, you're actually buying into what's sometimes referred to as the fourth layer of government. <laughs> there are requirements. And also, you know, if you go back, there's a number of uh, episodes where we've interviewed Amanda Farmer. She's a strata lawyer. And one episode we interviewed uh, Amanda was around the obligations that you have as an owner in a strata building. And you have an obligation to maintain that building. So, it's really important that when you're reading that strata report, you get a sense of how seriously those other owners take that obligation because you are picking up part of that when you buy. You are taking on that. And if those other owners don't take it seriously or have not maintained that building over time, ultimately, you know, you're going to be paying for the sins of other people or for the fact that other people haven't actually fulfilled their obligations. And in a hot market like we have at the moment, buyers will overlook all of this stuff. Yeah. But you have to realise that you are taking on this as a liability and just getting into the property market at all costs and sort of thinking she'll be right, it's actually not good enough. Yeah, we've seen the financial impact with some clients and clients have come to us and said, oh, you know, the building's got all these issues, we just want to get out of it, et cetera. But, you know, just recently a client bought into, you know, a really established suburb, a you know, more expensive apartment as well. And she's had an absolute nightmare for, you know, almost 18 months now and she's selling that apartment. And the emotional toll of that experience, the fighting, the toxicity in the building, the not similar to fire repairs, but it was, you know, water sort of damage. And that toll emotionally, not just financially, she's been able to get out of it because, you know, the marking's market's forgiving in times like now. Mm. But, you know, ultimately there's an emotional thing and it's stressful and you can get stuck in these buildings and then you can't sell it and, you know, all these problems. So that's that due diligence up front. You know, in her situation, I don't think it really could help because a lot of the issues started just after she bought. But, you know, those just that due diligence can save you, you know, potentially years of, of pain that um, you won't ever get back. So just be very conscious of that. You know, can you afford to take that emotional pain on as well. I think when you say that when you buy a property and you then these things started afterwards, often there are some signs, you know, that there's something looming. And there's some critical points in the in the age of a building, I guess, as well. And one is at that end of the homeowner's warranty period. If yep. the building is three stories or less in height, there's a homeowner's warranty period of seven years, you know, and usually leading up to that, they will get a building report done. So that really itemizes all the issues that they want to try and get the builder to rectify. And that 
can often be a very expensive time for a building because they're going to have to sometimes start forking out legal costs and a whole bunch of costs before they actually get any money back. And they may not get any money back or they may not get enough back to cover the cost yeah. of what they've actually expended. And so, and then the homeowner's warranty insurance policy is really only if the builder's gone bust anyway. And so if, if you know, that's the fallback position, you know, so what they're trying to do is actually get the builder, hopefully who hasn't gone bust, to, to come back and rectify work. So it's a very complicated, long, drawn out process that can be very punishing for the owners and and the people in the committee. And also, I mean, I I looked at a building recently where, you know, it wasn't in the strata report. What we could see is that they'd sued the builder and there was an agreement supposedly, but we had no record of that agreement because they'd subsequently decided to sue for costs. So there was an agreement. There was no documentation of that agreement. We just told it was agreed the builder would, would rectify. But of course, what was holding up that statement was this subsequent legal activity. But then in a bit of digging, which was not in the strata report, I found out that two apartments had been uninhabitable because of water. And that information was not in the strata report. But what wasn't there got us digging to try to see if we could fill in the gaps. And I think that's a really important thing to understand is that these strata reports, it's not enough just to get one. You have to then really start quizzing. And if you've got questions and you can't get answers because the strata manager wouldn't talk to us, then you, it, it's not worth the risk. Please join us for a next episode. We're talking all about property advice, opinions. Let's face it, nearly everyone's got one, particularly in a real estate-obsessed country like Australia. So we're joined by Daniel Budkovich. He's the money and advice editor at Domain, and we get some real insights into the way he thinks about property, the way he researches his articles, and the curiosity that is required in order to make good property decisions. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.